you've got your message notes, we're finishing this series on the book of Ruth, and this has been an incredible journey. Like, this is such a short book of the Old Testament, but it is the heart of the gospel in the Old Testament. It's such a clear, clear picture of Jesus. Now, one of my goals of uh, doing this series is really to teach you how to do this on your own, because one of the comments I've gotten a lot from people is I've read Ruth over and over. I've read it hundreds of times, and I've never seen any of that. Like, where? How do you see that in the Bible? Well, the key to studying the Old Testament is you find Jesus. When you find Jesus, it unlocks the rest of the story. And I've wanted to show you how to do that with the book of Ruth so that no matter what you read, you can do the very same thing on your own. This is what studying the Bible is all about. But here's Here's the thought when it comes to studying the Bible. There's a difference when you go to a nice restaurant and you order food off of the menu. How many of you realize that it takes a little bit longer for the food to get to the table than if you go through a drive-through and you order off the menu? And the quality of the food will be a little bit different. The taste of the food will be a little bit different. The nutritional value of the food will hopefully be a little bit different. Because there's a reason they call it junk food. Now, you can read the Bible like fast food. You can read the Bible like a drive-through. Just, you know, I'm going to do my 15 minutes of one-year Bible a day. I'm going to drive through. I'm going to get my Bible. I'm going to move on. And you're going to get a little bit out of it. But it's not going to be as nutritional as it could be if you put a little time and the planning and the prep and the development of the meal that you're going to eat. The more planning and prep and development of the meal, the the better it typically is. That's why we love to go out to nice restaurants as opposed to just eating fast food all of the time. Well, there's two ways you can eat from God's Word. Now, it takes a little bit more work, but here's the thing. Anybody can do it. This is one of the reasons why we've, we've asked everyone to consider getting a study Bible. In fact, a lot of the material from this series has come out of the Jesus Study Bible. It's one of my favorite study Bibles that just reveals Jesus all throughout the Bible, and it helps you unlock the story because God has hidden portraits of his son. There's typology of Christ all through the Old Testament, and when you find Jesus, the rest of the story makes sense. Let me give you another example uh, apart from the book of Ruth. Ruth is one of the easiest ones, but Look at Samson, for example. Now, when you find a typology of Christ in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that person was perfect. Only Jesus was perfect. And even though there's no recorded sin of Boaz in the book of Ruth, we know he was a sinner. We know he wasn't perfect. We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So even though he's a type of Christ in the Old Testament, he was still a human being He was just reflecting different characteristics and principles. So take Samson, for example, in the Old Testament. Samson was born a Nazarite, set apart from birth. Jesus was born a Nazarene. Samson was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do supernatural acts of strength and different things that he accomplished in his lifetime that really were miracles. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do supernatural miracles in people's life, feats of strength. Um, Samson loved prostitutes. Jesus loved prostitutes. Now, differently, (laughs) very differently, but you see the the symbolism there. The last verse on Samson's life, it said he accomplished more in his death than he did in his life. Jesus accomplished more in his death than he did in his life. So when you find Jesus, it, it just makes the story so much richer and so much more 
beautiful. And so that's the goal of this series, is to show you how to do it in one of the books of the Old Testament so that you can learn how to do this on your own. And there's always a supernatural element to studying the Bible because the Bible is not like any other book. You can read the same thing over and over and over and over again and always get something fresh and always get something new out of it because the Bible is living and breathing. And so there's a supernatural element to studying the Bible, and that is the Holy Spirit. And here's the good news. He's available to every one of you. And if you'll make the time and spend the time and and put a little effort, he will absolutely help you. There's nothing he would rather do than help you get life out of God's word. So if you put the time and energy, if it's not just fast food to you, but you spend a little time in it, and, and, and allow him to help you, it will breathe life. Like the, what, what I'm doing on the weekend is available to you in your private time. Like you can, you can get the same stuff out of it that I'm getting out of it on your own with his help. That's how powerful it is. So let's jump into it today. The book of Ruth, story of a guy named Elimelech, it begins with, and, and he's a, a Jewish guy married to Naomi. He's got two sons. There's a famine in the land. He decides to take matters into his own hand because he doesn't trust God. He moves his family to Moab because he's afraid they'll starve to death. And what he's afraid of dying ends up happening to him in Moab. Him and his sons die and leave Naomi a widow and his boys were married to Moabite women. And so you've got three widows now living in poverty, very destitute, Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem and rebuild her life. One of her daughter-in-laws go home. Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, decides to go with her and return to Bethlehem. Now, one of the, the couple keys of Ruth is there's no supernatural miracles in the book. It's a very ordinary book uh, filled with ordinary life events like pain and tragedy and suffering and, and, and death, which, which all of us have been through different tragedies in life. But there's no supernatural miracles. It's just filled with ordinary people that God uses in extraordinary ways. One of the other things to the book of Ruth that, that we highlight is everybody's name in the book has a meaning. And when you look up the meaning of the name, it adds richness to the story. It adds flavor to the story. For example, Naomi means pleasant. In chapter one, she got very bitter and angry because she thought God was punishing her. And she changed her name to Mara, which means bitter. Boaz means in him is strength. Now we know Boaz is a typology of of Jesus in the Old Testament. And his name says it clearly because in Jesus is strength. When we are weak, he is strong. For those of you that are military aficionados, the, the word Boaz, the last part of the word, the Z, the ooze, is where we get the word Uzi. Uzis were developed by the Israeli military, and ooze means strength, in him is strength, and that's kind of where we get the word Uzi, just fun trivia for you. All right, let's jump in, and we're going to finish chapter four today. What we see in chapter four is there's two redeemers. Remember last week, Boaz says, I'm going to redeem you, but there's somebody closer in line and he's got first right. He's got first option. So we see two redeemers in the story. And what it's speaking to us is that there's two ways for you to find redemption with God. And we're going to see that today. Chapter four, verse one. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate. The town gate is where all the elders, judges, officials, that's where they conducted all city affairs, city business, business deals, transactions. And he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer, here's the other guy he had mentioned, came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. So we got two guys. And today we're gonna figure out who 
gets the girl. Like, who is Ruth going to give the rose to? Who's she going to marry? Who's going to get the girl? We've got Boaz, who's this picture of Jesus, and we have this other guy. And the question is, what is he a picture of? What does he represent? What does he mean for us? Because there's a lot of symbolism here that applies to our life today. So let's dig into it. Verse 2. Boaz took 10 of the elders. One of the things we said about Ruth is all of the numbers have added meaning. Uh, Remember in chapter 2, Ruth works all day long, and at the end of the day, she has one measure of barley to show for all of her energy. Chapter 3, she comes to the feet of Boaz, and at the end of chapter 3, she doesn't lift a finger. She doesn't do any work at all, but she leaves with six measures of barley. Great truth there that you can work as hard as you want to work and only produce so much, but under God's grace, he can give you far more than you could ever produce with your own ability and your own effort. But the question was, why number six? What was relevant about six measures of barley? Well, the number six, all that means is God's not finished. There's another chapter because God always finishes everything on number seven. So it just means there's a seven on its way. And in Ruth's story, the seventh was the barley man. Like she didn't need any more measures of barley when she marries Boaz because she's going to have an unlimited supply of barley. So Boaz took 10. 10 here represents the 10 commandments, the law. The law is watching over. It's a test of, of who has right of redemption. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except for you and I am next in line. And so this guy says, I will redeem it. Now, at this point, all he believes is it's a piece of land. He doesn't know there's anything else involved in this business arrangement. He just thinks this is Elimelech's piece of property. In his mind, Naomi is really old. And so he's not going to have to marry Naomi and have any children with Naomi. And so he's going to be able to inherit Elimelech's land and property. It's going to come into his portfolio. It's going to come into his estate. And it's a very lucrative deal because he's going to be able to buy it at the cheap. And it's going to be his. He's going to be able to own it. It's going to be part of his portfolio. It's now part of his estate. But there's a catch. Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the dead man's widow. At this, the guy's face changed in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, the reason it would endanger his own estate is because the guardian redeemer had three roles in the Old Testament. If you had a relative that became poor and lost their property or sold themselves into slavery, you bought it back on their behalf. If you had a relative who was murdered, you avenged their blood. And if you have a relative that died, you took their wife and you had a son in the name of the dead relative. And so he would carry on that family name. And so he realizes, okay, if I buy the property, it's mine 
But if I buy it and have to marry Ruth and we have a son, the property will go to that son who's not a part of my family line, who's a part of this family line. And it's going to cost me money. It's going to cost me energy. It's going to endanger my estate. It's, I'm going to lose. So this isn't as good a deal as I thought it was originally. And so he decides to pass it up and give the option of redemption to Boaz. And, and, and so what we see here is a picture that there's two ways for redemption in our life. And in the word redemption, you could translate that as two ways to be accepted by God, two ways to find God's approval, two ways at salvation, two ways to get yourself to heaven. There's two ways to be redeemed. We have two redeemers in the story. The first way we see that you can be redeemed, who had first right of option, was you can be redeemed through the law. You can find redemption through the law. This other redeemer in the story represents the law. He represents the Old Testament. He represents the old covenant. Again, there's only two ways for someone to be redeemed. You can be redeemed through the law where you have to obey everything perfectly. See, here's the law. The law says if you obey, if you faithfully obey, then you will be blessed. Then you will be accepted. Then you will find favor then you can go to heaven, then you will have salvation, but you have to obey. You've got to follow all of the rules perfectly. You can't do anything wrong. You can never make a mistake. You've got to obey it all and be perfect. And if you can live a perfect life and obey everything, then you can find redemption and favor with God. How many know there's a problem with that? None of us are perfect. Every one of us have made mistakes. Every one of us have sinned. The Bible said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So none of us can be redeemed through the law because none of us can live up to the standard of the law. And that's what we see happening in the story. See, here's what the law says. In Deuteronomy, it says no Ammonite or Moabite, no Moabite. Ruth was a Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. So the law says you can't marry a Moabite. The law says the Moabite is not worthy. The Moabite is not qualified. The Moabite is not going. So this other redeemer rejected her. The law will always reject you. You will never be good enough for the law. You will never be good enough. You will never do enough. You will never obey well enough. If you try to find salvation through the law, you will always fail because the law will always reject you. You will never be good enough for the law. The law turned her down because she was a Moabite. It was against the law. And see, this is the point of Ruth. See, so many people I've heard teach the book of Ruth from the perspective of obedience. Ruth obeyed and she was blessed. That's not the story at all. You realize there are plenty of people who obeyed that were not blessed. Ruth was helpless. It didn't matter how much she obeyed. It didn't matter how much she did. She would always be a Moabite. There was nothing she could do to change who she was. No matter how faithful she was, no matter how well she obeyed, no matter how good of a person she became, she would always be a Moabite. Just like us, no matter how faithful we are no matter how much we could possibly do in our life, no matter how many good things we could rack up, we will always be sinners. We will never be perfect. And the law will always reject us. And then there's a very interesting custom. It says, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final 
one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Now, what what is this talking about? What, What does this represent? What does this mean? Well, it comes from a custom in ancient Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 25. It says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. This is the guardian redeemer. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother. This is why he rejected Ruth and, and, and said, that'll endanger my estate. I don't want to jeopardize my estate and have to divest all of my you know, wealth and property and everything I have so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. I'm so thankful that Jesus fulfilled the duty of a guardian redeemer in our life. Then the elders of this town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him and the presence of the elders take off one of his sandals and spit in his face. They somehow conveniently forgot that part of the custom by the time of Ruth. Like they forgot the whole spitting part. This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. You do not want to be called unsandaled in Israel. That is an incredibly offensive term. That is, that, that is not something you want labeled on you. Now, what is the significance of being unsandaled? Well, what part of your foot touches a sandal? The sole of your foot, right? It's the sole of your foot that touches the sandal. Well, earlier in Deuteronomy, God said to Moses, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. And then in the next book, Joshua, it says, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. The sole of your foot, whatever your sole of the foot touches means you have dominion, means you have position, possession, means it's yours. The sandal is representation of possession and dominion. See, this is a beautiful picture of what we see, the redemption through grace. See, that's what we see. There's two ways to be redeemed. There's two redeemers in the story, Boaz, who is grace, who is Jesus, and the other guy who is the law, who is the old covenant. And what happens is he takes the law takes off his sandal because the law will always reject you. You will never be good enough. And the law gives the sandal to Boaz. What does that mean for us today? It means when Jesus redeemed you, he took the sandal off of the foot of the law, meaning the law no longer has the power to walk on you. The law no longer has the power to beat you up, to shame you, to condemn you, to make you feel guilty, to make you feel worthless. The law no longer has power. Well, how come I still feel guilty? Because you're believing a lie. See, the truth is when you've been redeemed, the sandal was taken from the law. Now, you can believe the lie of Satan in your life and feel guilty and, and allow the lie to beat you up, but you got to realize there, there, there is no more power. And what we see in chapter 4 is the clearest picture of what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8, because in Romans 7, Paul says that we're married to the law by birth. 
Like when we are born, we're born under the law. We're born sinners. We're born condemned. We're born like in this impossible situation where we will never be able to save ourselves because the law is condemning us. And so we see a beautiful picture of what Jesus does in our life. Romans 7 puts it like this. Now we have been released from the law. The law no longer has a sandal. The no longer, law no longer has a foothold in our life. The law can no longer walk on us, for we died to it. We're no longer captive to its power, Paul says. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law. We don't serve God under the law anymore. We don't serve God under the old covenant. Remember the old covenant says, if you faithfully obey, then you're blessed. The new covenant says, if you believe, then you're blessed. Totally different. And you see, here's the problem with Christianity today. Most Christians today are struggling because they're mixing the old covenant and the new covenant together. We're trying to do both. See, we understand a little bit of grace. We understand a little bit about faith because we hear that, you know, it's by faith, by grace. But we also feel like we got to deserve it. We also feel like we got to earn it. We also feel like we need to obey and do some good things. And so we're coming to God with some good things and we're coming to God with some faith and we're mixing the old and new. And Jesus says, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. It'll burst. You cannot take a new piece of fabric and sew it into an old garment. It'll tear. And many Christians today feel like they're bursting inside, feel like they're tearing inside because you're mixing covenants. There's redemption by the law or redemption by grace, but there's not both. It's one or the other, and you have to decide who has dominion in your life. This is why Paul goes on in Romans 8 and says, there is no condemnation. The law lost its sandal. It cannot walk on you anymore. It cannot condemn you anymore. It cannot beat you up anymore for those who belong to Christ. Christ took the sandal from the law. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Under the new covenant, Hebrews tells us God takes the law and he writes it on our hearts so it becomes our desire. It becomes a new nature. The law of Moses was unable to save us. That's why Ruth was rejected by the other redeemer because she could not be saved through the law. She was a Moabite. She wasn't worthy. She didn't deserve it. She wasn't good enough. The law is unable to save because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end. You're going to see that in a moment from Boaz. He declares an end to the suffering in Ruth's life, to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us. This is what happens in chapter four. It's fully satisfied on behalf of Ruth, who no longer follows our sinful nature, but instead follows the spirit. How does Ruth become part of God's people? By grace. By gra- it's not by law. It wasn't through her obedience because she was a Moabite. Didn't matter how well she obeyed. Didn't matter how faithful she was to Naomi. She was a Moabite. She would never be accepted by the law. She fell at the feet of Boaz. She pleaded for grace. She pleaded for mercy. She had nothing else to base her request on. And she found acceptance. Here's the point. If grace blesses those who deserve it, it is no longer grace. If grace blesses people who deserved it, you cannot call it grace anymore. Grace can only bless people who don't deserve it. 
Grace can only bless people who are not good enough. Grace can only bless people who are not worthy. As long as you deserve it, you cannot be blessed by grace. You've got to get to the place where you realize, I don't deserve it before you can receive it. And I know what you're thinking. Well, doesn't the Bible say God helps those who help themselves? No, that's Benjamin Franklin. That's not the Bible. (laughs) And he wasn't even a Christian. He was a deist. See, the problem is God can't help so many of us because we're still trying to help ourselves. And until we get to the place where we're helpless and we stop trying to help ourselves, then and only then. Remember at the end of chapter 3, what did Naomi say to Ruth? If you'll wait, the man will not rest. When we wait, Jesus works. When we work, Jesus waits. What do you see in chapter 4? There's a lot of dialogue in chapter 4. Ruth doesn't say one word in chapter 4. Ruth doesn't do one thing in chapter 4. She's waiting, and all of chapter 4 is Boaz working on her behalf to change a situation that was helpless in her life. She wound up in this horrible situation, and she waits, and he works on her behalf to change her circumstances. And that's what God wants to do for you. That's what this whole book is about. So let's keep reading. Verse 9, then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi, fully satisfied. It's done. It is finished. All the property of Elimelech, Shilion, and Myelon. Remember, Shilion and Myelon were named sick and dying. Don't name kids sick and dying. Bad name for kids. But what I love about this is Jesus bought all of our sickness and all of our death. Jesus paid for it all. He paid for all of our sickness. He paid for all of our death. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite. I took the girl who didn't deserve it. I took the one who wasn't worthy. I took the one who didn't qualify. And I bought, I'm so glad Jesus bought me the sinner. That he paid for me. He acquired me and he didn't have to. Mylon's widow is my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. This is such a beautiful picture of what Paul says in Galatians 3. Christ bought us with his blood. He acquired us with his blood. He made us free from the law. The law no longer has a sandal. In that way, the law could not walk on us anymore. I hope you're catching how Ruth is a picture of everything that is taught in the New Testament. It goes on. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman. Now, when you study this in Hebrew, there's some interesting grammar here because no longer is she being referred to as the Moabite. She's actually being exalted in this terminology who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. They were the the mother of all of the tribes of Israel through Rachel and Leah and their servants who together built up the family of Israel. Now, this is what's really interesting. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Ephrathah is the ancient name for the city of Bethlehem. Be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. Any other famous babies born in Bethlehem that you know of? I mean, there's a foreshadowing. It's a typology of Christ giving birth to a typology of Christ. So there's, two, there's two typologies of Christ in the book of Ruth, Boaz and the baby. Now, this is what's interesting. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. That's very interesting. Why Tamar? Why is she mentioned in the blessing? Why not Rebekah? Why not Sarah, the, the wife of Abraham? Why Tamar? What's significant about Tamar? Why are they blessing her in the name of Perez and Tamar? Well, if you know the backstory of Perez and Tamar, for Tamar, it was her 
second marriage that produced Perez, that produced the bloodline of Jesus. For Ruth, this is her second marriage. See, here's the problem in Christianity today, in the church today. There are a lot of people who have found themselves in painful circumstances. Maybe you've been divorced. Maybe you caused it. Maybe it happened to you. And you're now living with this stigma that somehow you miss God's best for your life. Like you miss God's original plan for your life and the rest of your Christianity is going to be second best. This flies in the face of that thinking. They're saying, may you be like Tamar, who God took a bad situation and made it as fruitful as an original, meaning there is no second class in Christianity. There is only grace and redemption in Christianity. You don't have to live in a stigma that I miss God's best for my life because I wound up in an ugly circumstance. You can live under grace and under righteousness and God can make your future as fruitful as if it never happened. So fruitful, in fact, that this was the very bloodline of Jesus himself. From a broken, because if you remember the story, Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons and he was wicked and he died. And so Judah gave him the second son and he was wicked and he died. And Judah had a third son. He's like, I'm not giving her my third son because every son I've given her has died. And so he does the wrong thing. And so she dresses up like a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law, sleeps with him and has a baby named Perez. Messed up situation that God redeems and writes into his story for his glory which means it doesn't matter the situation. You may have caused it. You may have made mistakes. It may have happened to you. They may have died. You may be a widow. doesn't matter. God can take your future and redeem it for his glory and the most beautiful and incredible. And I know the danger of teaching this is people will tell me that you can't teach that because you're giving people an excuse to go do what they want to do. No, God knows your heart. Don't, don't use grace to go do what you want to do because you think you can come back in a year and, and everything's going to... No, that's a perversion of grace. See, here's the point. God hates divorce, but he loves divorced people. And God can bless a divorced person like Tamar who bore Perez, who is the very bloodline of Jesus because of his grace. So there is no such thing as being second class in the kingdom. There is only redeemed in the kingdom. And all of us have been redeemed. Just beautiful picture there. I just wanted to give that grace for those of you that have been carrying that stigma, which I know some of you have because I've heard it from you. Let's keep reading. Uh, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. So in her first marriage, she was barren, but now under grace, she's becoming very fruitful. And that's what happens. You live under God's grace. You become fruitful in ways that you couldn't be fruitful before. And she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. And now they begin to prophesy over the baby. May he become famous throughout Israel. You see a foreshadowing to Christ. This baby may become famous. This baby that was born in Bethlehem may become famous throughout Israel. And I love the title they give to the baby through this prophecy. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Well, who does that for us? Jesus. Jesus renews our life and he sustains us in our age. And then she says, for your daughter-in-law loves you and who is better to you than, there's the number seven. Remember chapter three had number six. Here's number seven for you. It's finished. Seven means complete. He's given you seven sons. This baby is better to you than seven sons that has been given birth. And what this is, is a foreshadowing 
to Jesus. And you see this foreshadowing throughout the Old Testament. Micah prophesies years later, he says, but you, Bethlehem Ephathra, through you, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Remember Jesus said before, Abraham was, I am. Beautiful picture here. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth was written during the time of King David to point to David. David was the greatest king in the the nation of Israel's history. And so this was kind of part of his memorial story to his life. It was the, the pointing to who David was. And then it lists a genealogy. It says, this then is the family line of Perez. Perez is the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. What's interesting about these two is Nashon was the commander of Judah's army. Judah was first in battle in in every fight. Judah went in first. Uh, Many Jewish scribes, Jewish scholars, Jewish rabbis believe Nashon and Salmon, it's part of their tradition, were the two spies in Rahab's home. Salmon was the one Mary Rahab, so it was kind of love at first sight because they were the spies in the home. Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Now, when I read this this week, something like clicked inside of me. And because and the whole book of Ruth, remember, everyone's name has a meaning. Why a genealogy? They, are, they already told us it points, you know, they, they already told us about Perez. They already told us about David. So why did they add this genealogy at the end? And so I looked up each person's name. And what I found was there, there, was, a, there was a hidden message. Now, you can think it's coincidence. I've studied the Bible long enough to know that these things aren't coincidence. Remember Good Friday? If you, those of you who were here at a Good Friday service, the holiest name for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, yod heh vod That's the holiest name for God. It's the name that the Jews won't even say. They say Hashem, which means the name, because they won't let Yahweh come out of their lips. Well, Yahweh is four Hebrew letters. The Hebrew alphabet is pictures. yod heh vod What it means is behold the open hand, behold the nail. The holiest name for God in the Old Testament means behold the open hand, behold the name. In fact, it was what Pilate put over Jesus on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was an anacronym. The first letter of each word spelled out Yahweh. That's why the high priests were so mad. So you see these hidden messages throughout the Bible. So when you study this, there was a hidden message of God's love for us. Let me show it to you quickly. Perez means breach or break, like like a levee or dam was breached or broken. Hezron is surrounded or enclosed by a wall. Ram is high and exalted. In Israel, there's a place called Ramah, which is a high place. Amimadab is my noble kinsman. Nashon means enchanter or miracles or supernatural. Salmon means mantle or garment. Boaz, again, is in him is strength. Obed means to serve or serving. Jesse's interesting. Jesse means the one who exists or the one who is. It's like exists. And then David, many of you know, means the beloved. There's a whole message there. You cannot fight a giant without the spirit of David. Like you will never fight Goliath until you know you're the beloved, until you know how much God loves you and how crazy is God is about you. You'll never have the ability to fight a giant without knowing you're the beloved. Now, now th- th- this is what's amazing. You take all of their names and you put them in order. That was the genealogy chart. So, so when the Jews are reading, they're, they're, they're knowing the definitions of these names, reading this in order. The breach has been enclosed. 
by the high and exalted noble kinsman with miracles in his garment. Remember the lady with the issue of blood touched the hem of Jesus's garment, found healing. In him is strength to serve the one who is his beloved. Who is his beloved? For God so loved the world. We are the beloved. See, there is a breach in our life called sin that has been enclosed by the high and exalted kinsman who has miracles in his garment. In him was the strength to go to the cross to serve us who are his beloved. Is that crazy? Pretty awesome, huh? That's why I love the Bible. I mean, it's just so rich. Let me give you one more prophecy as we close the message. And, and, And really, this is what the book of Ruth is pointing to. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David. Remember, all of Ruth is pointing to David, a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. The Lord, our righteous Savior. Here's the question as we end. Have you been redeemed? Have you ever come to the feet of Jesus and just fallen at his feet and asked for grace? See, here's the qualification for Jesus being your savior. You gotta be a sinner. If you're not a sinner, he can't save you. He can only save sinners. He came to save sinners. So if you don't see yourself as a sinner, you can't see Jesus as your savior. Now, for me, that's pretty easy because I was really, really good at sin. But the problem for many people in our community is we really don't think we're that bad of people. I mean, the fact that we live in North County means we're the good people. Like, we know the bad people. They live over there. Like, we're the good people. Like, we, we take care of our family. We, we work hard at our careers and our jobs. Like, we're, the, we're not the bad people. We're the good people. See, until you find yourself helpless as a sinner, you can't come to Jesus as your Savior. And the problem is many of us have never felt helpless. Because we think we're pretty good people. And so we come to Jesus, but we don't fall at his feet because we're not helpless. Like, we come to Jesus with some stuff to offer. Like, yes, Jesus, I need your grace, and, you know, I want to go to heaven, but, but I've got some stuff to contribute because I'm a pretty good person. And very few of us have ever come to Jesus and just fallen on our face at his feet and say, I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to give. I'm a sinner and I need your mercy. Many of us have never really done that because we really don't consider ourselves all that bad. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to think through your life history. Take the five best things you have ever done. The five greatest moments of generosity, of compassion, of giving, of caring for other people. Take the five greatest things you have ever done in your life. You got them? They are filthy rags in the sight of Jesus. They get you nowhere. They get you nothing. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest human being to ever live. Greater than Mother Teresa. And then in the next sentence, he said, even John's not good enough. He needs a savior. Take the greatest things you've ever done in your life. They are filthy rags. You think somehow it impresses Jesus in light of what he did on your behalf? You think somehow you earn credit? 
No, that's, that's trying to take the old covenant and the new covenant. You can't have it both ways. You either come to him by grace or you come to him by law. And if you come to him by the law, you're obligated to keep it all and it will reject you. So it'll never be about you being good enough. It'll never be about you being worthy enough. You come to him helpless and you fall at his feet and you say, Jesus, I've got nothing to offer you. I need your grace and I need your mercy. Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, as we leave today, let this sink home. Wherever we're at, God, let us learn to come to you to fall at your feet and plead for your grace and your mercy because we have nothing to offer you. Our best deeds are filthy rags in your sight. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going we're gonna to do one closing song today. During this song, our prayer team will be available. If you're here today and you've never fallen at the feet of Jesus, you've never allowed yourself to get to this place where you're helpless, you're hopeless, you can't save yourself, you're lost, you're a sinner, where you're willing to kind of forsake all of your good works because you realize the, the, all of the good you've ever done in your life, if you try to be saved through your good works, that is redemption through the law the law will always reject you. You can't offer your good works for salvation. But the beauty is, when you live under grace, you'll actually do more good with your life. But you're not doing good to earn anything. You're doing good because you've already received it all. And that's the beauty of grace. So if you're struggling for redemption, if you need Jesus, if you've never come to Jesus helpless before and said, save me, I've got nothing to offer you, I cannot encourage you enough. Don't miss this opportunity and moment to talk to somebody on our prayer team today. If you're here today and you're struggling with shame because you're still allowing the law to walk all over you, you need to realize the law lost its sandal. It has no power in your life. The only power it has is the power you give it. If you believe the lie, it has power. Come talk to somebody on our prayer team and let's pray the righteousness of Jesus to cover your life, to cover your mind so you can begin to see yourself the way God sees you. The new person that you are. And if there's anything else going on, our prayer team would love to pray with you. We're going to close with this final song. The prayer team will be available.